As it every week, we are uh, one week behind uh, in the parasha, only because uh, we wanted to make a complete series. So uh, since we began after Bereshit had already been read, so it turns out that it, uh, we are always going to be one week behind, at least until we can one day, one, one day we'll have the opportunity to, uh, to catch up, I'm sure, like we did last year. Eventually we caught up. But these parashiyot are too difficult to uh, skim over. There's, there's so much content in each one that uh, I never feel that we do justice to, um, even if we had each day uh, a shiur on, the, uh, on that parasha of the week and we spent an hour, I mean, we still wouldn't be able to get a complete picture and certainly not uh, one hour a week. So, um, so to skim through these parashiyot quickly would be would really be a travesty. So we don't want to we don't want to skim too quickly. But what I wanted to do here, just like what I've been doing um, in each week in Bereshit and Noach and and, and Lech Lecha, is again to try to zero in on uh, on aspects of the parasha or uh, segments of it or episodes in the parasha that are not the ones that are typically studied because a lot of times, I think, number one, we tend to focus on the beginning of the parasha. Most classes in the parasha, they focus on the beginning. As of the first couple of episodes in the parasha, get all the attention and love and the rest of the parasha, a lot of times uh, people are not as focused or they don't appreciate as much. The ultimate example is Vizota Baracha, the very last parasha of the Torah that nobody ever learns. And part of the reason is because it's on Simchat Torah. So people are not, people are distracted and they don't really focus as much on learning the parasha. But, and also it's during Sukkot and there's holiday. And so, but it's true about each individual parasha as well. As you get further into the parasha, typically people are less attentive and a lot of the attention is drawn to the beginning of each parasha. And also to the stories that are maybe the most dramatic or seem to be the most, um, the most connected to the unfolding narrative. So that allows us to kind of gloss over parts of the story that we don't immediately see as connected to the bigger picture as we understand it. So when it comes to Bereshit, for example, Hevel and Cain, how do they fit in? That's why we talked about that this year. Or, or um, in Lech Lecha, speaking about the, um, or Noach, speaking about Migdal Bavel. You know, so, so focusing on the aspects of the parasha that are the less, uh, or last week we talked about the four kings and the five kings. Again, something that most people that read parasha Lech Lecha, the first thing they think of is not, oh, the four kings and the five kings, that's the most important thing in parasha Lech Lecha. No. So the fact that we focus on that. Now this week, what I thought we might focus on is, uh, and I actually spoke about it on Shabbat, um, touched upon it uh, in, in the speech that I gave on Shabbat, because it's uh, a character that to me is a very intriguing Character in the Chumash that maybe doesn't get enough of our uh, uh, consideration, and that is Avimelech, Avimelech, and the relationship between Avimelech and Avraham, because there are a number of kings that Avraham interfaces with during his career. The first being Paro when he goes down. I mean, in the Midrashim, he of course first has a run in with Nimrod, who throws him into the fiery furnace. But that's not actually written in the Chumash; that's in the Midrash. But in the, uh, when he comes to, in, in the Chumash, we first see him in, interacting with Paro and later with the king of Sidom, the four kings and the five kings. And here we find him, uh, inter- and, and at the end of the story of the four kings and the five kings, he meets Malkitzedek that we spoke about last time. Here he, he interacts with this king, Avimelech, Melech Pilishtim. And, um, and again, this is in, uh, in this Chumash, if you're using an article Chumash, you would find it on page 90. It's chapter 20 in the book of Bereshit. 
Now, Avimelech seems to be a title rather than a person's name, just like Paro was not a person's name. It was the title of the person. Uh, that that's why all of the Paros, every Paro is called Paro because they're all they all have the same uh, they all have the same title because it's actually a reference to the house of the uh, to the house of government to the seat of government. It's like saying the White House said such and such. You know, the Paro actually it was a was a title that reflected his office. So Avimelech is, uh, has a sense of, you know, Avimelech is a title, my fa- father king. Like he was like the, uh, the head of the, of the, huh? Like sir. Yeah, but it's, it, it has a, ki- a, a, a meaning of king, but Avimelech is almost like, you know, a higher, maybe even higher than a king. But the point is that he, it's a title, not his personal name. That's why there's a lot of Avimelechs. There's Avimelech later, and 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 there are other Avimelechs in the in the um, in the Tanakh. In any case, so Avram says, Avram, as we know, misrepresents or uh, or does is not fully uh, uh, honest. Does not does not fully divulge his relationship with Sarah and says she's my sister. And so the king Avimelech Melech takes. Sarah as a wife, just like Paro had done. Now, in the case of Paro, in Parashat Lech Lecha, when Paro took Sarah, he started having terrible plagues come upon him, and he realized as a result of these plagues that there must be something wrong, and then he kicks Avram out, pretty much, right? That, that's the basic story. Now, you notice right away there's something different here, because Hashem does not only plague Avimelech. He actually does plague him, but it doesn't say that. It says, it says that God comes to Avimelech in a dream of the night. That's already a certain level of respect for Avimelech, I, I, I think. And, and that's sort of what we're going to see in the unfolding story. That Avimelech is not treated the same way as Paro. And a lot of times the Torah teaches us something by contrast, by treating two different characters in a similar way, but not exactly the same. Both Yishmael and Yitzchak are sacrificed by Abraham, but in different ways. Uh, Yishmael, he has to send away. Yitzchak, he's asked to actually bring as a sacrifice, which of course he doesn't do. You know, Abraham and Lot both do Hachnasat Orchim. Abraham does Hachnasat Orchim in a more, a, a more proper way that reflects the way of Hashem. And Lot does it in a way that does not reflect the way of Hashem faithfully. So when the Torah tells you parallel stories like Abraham and Lot both welcoming guests or Yishmael and Yitzchak and Abraham's difficulty in separating from each of them and so on, it's teaching you through the difference, it's teaching you, uh, you know, precisely because there's a similarity, we see what the contrast is and we understand the difference between the two. So in the case of Avimelech, this story sounds very familiar. Sarah is identified as a beautiful woman. The king, uh, the local king takes her as a wife and then something goes wrong. This time Hashem speaks to, uh, to Avimelech. You're going to die because of the woman you've taken because she belongs to somebody else. She's somebody else's wife. And this comes as a great surprise to Avimelech or so it would seem. And Avimelech had not approached her, meaning he had taken her but he had not Engaged in any physical with her physically in any way. He said, "Hashem, will you slay a righteous nation?" 
Now, seemingly, he's referring to himself, the head of the nation, but the idea is that um, are, are you going to hold us responsible for, uh, well, we are innocent. How could you say you're going to kill me because of the woman that I've taken? He told me that she was only a sister. He's referring to Avram. Avram told me she was a sister. And she definitely said that, she, that he was her brother. With a pure heart and clean hands, I did this. In other words, Avimelech is protesting his innocence. This is not something that we find in Paro at all, because when Paro took Sarah, all that happened was that plagues came upon him and his household, and then he, got, he sent, uh, sent Sarah away, sent Avram away. Here Hashem is engaging with Avimelech. He's speaking to Avimelech and telling him you did something wrong. And Avimelech is defending his actions. Or maybe not his actions, but at the very least his innocence. Saying it was, it was, I misunderstood and I was misled and it wasn't my fault. So he's making excuses and he's getting defensive. But, yeah, but what we noticed about Avimelech, which is very interesting, I'm going to show you in just a second, is that every time Avimelech is confronted about anything, he gets very defensive. He's a very defensive person, and I think that's one of the interesting things about him, for many reasons, for many reasons. But we'll, we'll come to why I think it's, maybe, maybe there's something we can learn from Avimelech, maybe uh, something we can learn what to do and what not to do. You know, he's a mixed character. But um, now, Vayomer elav Elohim b'chalom, Hashem said to him in the dream, Gam I also knew that you did this with a pure heart, meaning you didn't intend any wrongdoing. And that's why I stopped you from sinning to me. This, therefore, I did not allow you to touch her, meaning I didn't give you the opportunity to approach her physically because I didn't want you to commit like a sin that was irreversible, a terrible sin. Because I knew that you didn't really intend to commit a sin. So you see again, Hashem is having a very interesting conversation with Avimelech because on one hand, Hashem is accusing him of doing something and saying, I really should kill you, right? But on the other hand, he's saying, oh no, I know that you were innocent, so I prevented you from fully sinning because I know that you were innocent, right? And now you notice that Hashem, and Rashi points this out, that when Avimelech spoke, he said, I did this, I did it with clean heart and also with clean hands. Whereas when Hashem responds, he says, I know you did it with an innocent heart. Maybe not so much with innocent hands, you know, meaning you weren't a hundred percent innocent here because you could have done a little bit better due diligence. You could have been a little bit more careful. You could have been a little bit more cautious. You didn't have to grab her right away. Wait a little while. We see that later on with Yitzchak and Rivka, the, at that point, Avimelech sees uh, Yitzchak and Rivka together and realizes they're men and wife before he has the opportunity to go and take Rivka as a wife because he waited a little bit longer. You know? So there is something, okay, you didn't intend to do anything wrong, but you didn't exactly proceed in the way of a person who was carefully avoiding any mistakes. Okay, You went a little bit too quickly, even though you didn't intend to do what was wrong. So he said, that's why I didn't let you commit a real sin. Now return the wife of this man because he is a prophet. And then he will pray for you and you will live. But if you don't return her, you're going to die and everybody with you is going to die. It's a, it's a big, big serious threat because you are the king and you represent the moral uh, standards of the entire 
city. So therefore, if you don't do what's right, everyone is going to die. So it's very interesting that on one hand, Hashem is acknowledging the innocence and the purity of Avimelech on a certain level. But at the same time, he's really being harsh in terms of the punishment that he is uh, threatening to bring upon Avimelech if he doesn't do the right thing. So obviously, there must be reason to believe that Avimelech won't do the right thing. Right? In other words, even after he's saying to him, you're going to die, and Avimelech says, what do you mean? Uh, I, I was innocent, and everything that I did was, you know, was undertaken with a good heart, and I didn't mean to do anything wrong. And Hashem said, that's right, that's why I didn't let you sin. But if you don't return her, and, you, and, and, and make sure that the prophet prays for you, I'm going to kill you, and everybody with you. Meaning, everybody in your household. So, the fact that Hashem has to add that consequence implies that he wasn't fully, uh, it wasn't so clear that Avimelech was going to follow through and do the right thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't need any threat to make that happen. But Avimelech gets up in the morning and he tells all the people in the city. And they were very afraid of the possibility of God punishing them for this uh, moral uh, travesty that, that occurred. And suddenly we find Avimelech confronts, uh, he confronts Avraham. But look very carefully at the way that he confronts Avraham, and you see something fascinating about Avimelech here also. He says, He first comes with all guns blazing against, uh, against Avraham. What did we do to you? What did I do to you? You know, what have you done to us? And what sin did I do to you? That you brought upon me and my kingdom a great sin. You did things that are not done. In other words, you did inappropriate things. So come and say this woman is your sister when she's really not. She's really your wife. And you caused a terrible sin to happen or potentially caused a terrible sin to happen. So at first, Avimelech is very aggressive and accusatory because he feels that he's been put in a morally compromised position and it reflects really poorly on him. He's putting the blame on Avraham. He's a politician. That's what politicians do best. Right, they always they always put the blame on somebody else. It is hard to blame. Yeah, no, yeah. So he's true, but the uh, and and but you see at the same time. So Avimelech, yes, attacks Avraham for not being forthright with him, right? And he blames him, but then he says something else. Look at what he says then. Vayom, yeah, except Paro just said, "Get out of here." No, he never asked him a question. If you look at what Paro did when this happened with um, with Avraham, so he said when they came down to Egypt, it just says Paro called Avraham and said, "What did you do to us? Why didn't you tell us she was your sister? Why did it?" Right, but, but then he just says, "Get out!" Right? He kicks him out. In other words, his question is a rhetorical question. He doesn't really care what the answer is. He just said, get out, you know? That's, it's like uh, he was being rhetorical. Whereas, listen to Avimelech. This is, again, I think what's really important is to notice the differences between Paro and Avimelech because Paro asks a rhetorical question. How dare you do this to me? Like when someone says, how dare you do this to me? They don't really want an answer. Well, it was because of the, you know, they're, they're, it's a rhetorical question. They want you out. So, but Avimelech, after he says his criticism, says, Vayomer Avimelech al-Avraham, and it's almost a softening. It's almost like it, it already said Avimelech was talking to Avraham. So why does it again say, and Avimelech said to Avraham? Because it sounds like he changed his tone for a second. At first he was very aggressive. 
You know, but then he said, What did you see that caused you to do this? Right? So all of a sudden you see a vulnerability of Avimelech. He says, there must be a reason you would lie to me like this. In other words, if you read it the same way as Paro, Paro didn't really care what the answer was, why, why Abraham said what he said. He just wanted him out. He was just embarrassed and upset. Avimelech, after he screams at Abraham, says, why is it that you really weren't honest with me? <laughs> like, what did you see? Mara'ita, he says. What did you see that you did this? Now, what does that tell you? And I think this is the key, in a way, to Avimelech's personality. Optics are very important to Avimelech. What did you see means what gave you the impression you wouldn't be treated fairly? What gave you the impression that you would come to harm? What did you see means we're obviously not doing a good job of making people, of, of, of creating the perception that we're a very moral society because we're asking because you must have seen that we're not. It seems also, yeah. because you mentioned that, it makes a lot of sense because it seems as a very insecure person. Yeah. Immediately he's defending himself with a Gadosh Baruch and then afterwards he comes in kind of like... Attacks, but then pulls back. With, you know, just, just because he's trying to defend... You know, like when somebody's very insecure, they have to like shift the blame. Yeah. For yeah. Whenever somebody's guilty of something, they first attack the person who's accusing them. You know, and then they take a step back and wonder what. You know. So he he attacks him, but then he says, "What exactly was it? The reason that you uh, that you did this?" Meaning he feels insecure, and even when he's speaking to Hashem, the fact that he gives excuses, uh, I asked him, and I asked her, and I, I'm innocent, and we're going to see that later on when Abraham confronts. Avimelech about the wells that his servants stole, it's the same thing, right? He says, I didn't know about it and I didn't hear about it and you didn't tell me, so it's really your fault because you should have told. He's, he's very defensive. But the fact that he asks, what did you see, means what gave you the impression that we're not a very moral, upstanding society? Because in his mind, when he says to Hashem, would you kill an innocent nation? He sees his people as being very morally upstanding people, good people, ethical people. So he can't understand why Avram would think that way. And I suspect that Avimelech, that Avram, the very fact that Avram came and lived with Avimelech, notice that there's no famine here. This isn't like the case of, in the case of Paro. In the case of Paro, Avram was forced to go to live in, in Mitzrayim because there was no food in Eretz Israel. But this is actually part of Eretz Israel. This is a part of Eretz Israel in Gar where he's going. He didn't leave Eretz Israel. He came because now that the, after Sodom was destroyed, and so he no longer had a, he no longer had students. He no longer had a an audience for his teachings. So he moved to a new area where he would be able to spread the word of Hashem to a different population. So the fact that he came to Avimelech's neighborhood in a way makes Avimelech look very good. It's like if somebody very distinguished comes and they become a part of your community, it really says something. You know, if some great tzaddik came to Great Neck and decided to come to your synagogue of all the synagogues and that was going to be their community, you'd say, wow, that really says something about the community, that this great person, he wants to come to this community. You know, so that's the, so Avimelech sees the Avram's presence in a way as a validation that this is a goy tzaddik, that we're a good people because we will know that Avram is a great man. And that, because he's already famous at this point. It's not like Avram is a nobody. You know, he's somebody that people recognize as somebody important. He came there 
and the, to a certain extent that elevates Avimelech, but then the problem is that now he's saying that, no, you're really not good because you weren't honest with me. So obviously you don't think I'm, uh, I'm so good because you don't trust me to tell me that this is your wife instead of your sister. And so he's defensive about that. And what does Avram say? He said, I see there's no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, he said, I was able to perceive. In other words, Avimel said, what did you see? Okay. He said, it's not anything I saw. Everything on the surface looked very good. I didn't say, he said, Amarti, I said, which means I understood. There's a certain surface level of righteousness that you can maintain. We call it plausible deniability in the world of American politics, right? If you can, you can make it seem that everything was on the up and up, even though what's going on behind the scenes, everybody knows is corrupt, you know, and rotten all the way to the core. But on the surface, it looks good. The optics are good. There's plausible deniability. It's not traced back to the, uh, you know, to, to the people that it's not allowed to be traced back to and so on. Then it'll be okay. So somebody would go and make it look like an accident. Get Abraham out of the picture so Avimelech could take the wife and nobody, and everyone would say, Avimelech is a tzaddik or another. That, that sort of thing could happen here. I saw a surface level of morality. But but I didn't see real fear of God in this place that people would actually be moral in a genuine way. Kind of like in our society. Well, now in our society, I'm not even sure that we have the, the fake kind of morality anymore. But it used to be that we, had, that we had that, you know. It used to be that there was a pretense of morality among leaders and politicians and things like that, that they had to seem ethical and moral, at least on the surface. And if they had like a scandal that came out... You know, in the news, even a slight scandal, that was it. There, somebody didn't pay taxes for the money that... Remember that the scandal that these... I, I don't know if... Uh, we're around the same age, I think, right? So we, you and I. Do so you might remember like scandals of politicians where they paid their... No, no, we're, we're the same age, I think. Right? Where, where, where they paid like their housekeepers off the books... And therefore, they couldn't run for office. It's like nowadays, that's like the least thing you ever think of, you know? But there used to be a sense of, like, you had to at least look very decent. Oh, they took a picture of you doing something that was, you know, looked bad. It might not it might be totally out of context. Oh, that's it. Your, your, your life is over. You're, yeah, yeah, you had to resign. Optics really mattered back then, right? I mean, in, in, in recent times, maybe less so, it seems like it. But, in, but certainly in... Today, they just tell you it never happened. They, they just deny it, even though... Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Or they don't, or they don't care that it happened. Even worse, they don't care that it happened, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, they don't care so much anymore. It used to really be like a, a different world. So what did Avram so, Right, so, so Avram saw there was a kind of that American morality going on of like, well, of course, you know, the, the, the leader has to be 10 steps of separation away from any corrupt activity and it would, it would, be, it would be a hush-hush thing and it wouldn't be obvious and it couldn't come to light and all that. But there wasn't a real Yirat Elohim that was genuine of doing the right thing. It was more that it had to seem. They had a reputation for being a, 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 a community that was law-abiding and moral and ethical, but not necessarily was it genuinely so. And that's what bothered Avimelech because he thought there's something outwardly that Avram saw. I said, I didn't see outwardly. Amarti, I said, 
There's no fear of God in this place. Meaning I understood, I grasped that it wasn't genuine. And so therefore, I, 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 didn't, uh, I didn't trust. And that's something right? that's very, also very hard to deny or to even prove, so he can't. Right, so what's he going to say? But, but Avimelech is a very defensive guy. But then, but then the thing is, then Avram says an interesting thing. He says, Vegam Omna, it's also true. What's true? He says, actually, we are related. There's a whole question of what exactly he means. She's my sister from my father's side, not my mother's side, meaning maybe are, that she was his niece. It's, the commentaries try to figure out exactly what the relationship is that he's describing. But meaning to say, the simple way to interpret what he means is that he means we are related even though she's not actually my full sister, but we're related. And a lot of times you'll say, oh, my brother. Like when Avram says to uh, Lot, Anashim we're brothers. They're not brothers. It's his nephew. He goes, I'm brother. Meaning a brother means we are part of, fa- we're family. We're family. Yeah. yeah. So, right. So he said, technically I wasn't lying. And he said, when God took me from my father's house, this is Rashi's interpretation. Actually, there's a, uh, there's a, Onkulos has a totally different interpretation that you would actually have to change the Tamea Mikra, you would have to change the cantillation to fit, fit with Onkulos translation of it because it's different. He interprets this whole Pasuk totally differently than what Rashi does. Rashi's way fits with the way that we have the punctuation in our Chumashim. When God took me away from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you should do with me. Everywhere we go, say that I'm your brother. In other words, what is Avram doing here though? Why does he have to say, Oh, you know, even though I lied, it wasn't really a lie because it was actually true. So, so, so what? Yeah, you already told right, you already took to her as a wife and it was wrong. So well, what, what difference? And, and now you're telling me a whole story. Oh, by the way, when I left home, I asked her to say, what, what does that have to do with anything? So still, the bottom line is what you said wasn't uh, 100% accurate and I ended up doing something very bad. So what difference does it make that uh, you're related to her? What difference does it make that you asked her to do this when you left your home? What's the answer? He's tr- yeah. I'm sorry, maybe he's trying to, he realized that what he did and he's, he's trying to befriend because he wants to befriend Avimelech again and not to like, create a, a crow. Right, right. So, so yeah, I mean, the Ramban actually asks, he says, I don't understand. What kind of like... Uh, uh, excuses it. But I think the answer is like what you're saying. When you lie to somebody, they take it personally. Like you disrespected me. Why, why did you disrespect me like that? You know? What, you know? And, and so he's saying to him, I didn't disrespect you personally because I just omitted. It was a, it was omission. I didn't lie. It was, I omit, I didn't give you the full truth. And also it wasn't personal because from the time that we left home, we always said everywhere we went, I'm, we're brother and sister. So it wasn't personal to you, meaning he tried to diminish the extent of the offense to Avimelech because he saw that Avimelech was very defensive. And so, but I think that's very, that's a significant thing because like all these, Sukim is like, what is he doing? He's, li- he's covering up the lie, saying it's not really a lie and he's, you know, it's like technically on paper, it's not a lie. And I mean, why is he saying that? You see that Avram wants to preserve, and I think this is the important thing, Preserve the relationship with Avimelech. He sees that Avimelech is personally offended. He doesn't want to personally offend Avimelech, but what he does do is tell him, 
He's honest with him. There's a lack of fear of God here. Don't take it personally. I'm not saying you are the worst person and I wouldn't tell you a bold-faced lie like that. And it wasn't something that I only told here like there was something especially bad about your neighborhood or about you. This was our line everywhere we went. This was our cover story everywhere we went. It's partial truth in order to stay safe. So that I would, you know, and, and, and this was an agreement I had with my wife. So don't take it personally. It was our policy. It's like when people say that, that's the favorite, favorite thing. It's just a policy. It's, it's not, right? Right, this is the store policy. It's not personal. This is the policy of the, of the school. It's nothing about you. This is the policy of the synagogue. It's not that we don't want you to bring food from your home for the shira because you're not kosher. It's that the policy is it has to come from a, 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 an outside place. Well, you know, they do the policy for a reason so nobody gets offended. Oh, well, your house is not kosher and your house is or whatever. But policy is, po- is always a good refuge to take, not to offend people. So I say, this is a policy. So he said, this was our policy. And it was a policy of only divulging part of the truth. Don't take it personally. But yes, we applied it here because we didn't feel, we felt that this place was lacking fear of God. Not especially so, not, not more than other places. And, I, and, it, and not targeted specifically to you, but this was the policy that we applied in every place that we sensed that it was necessary. So Avram, it you see, is for sure, on one hand, giving Musar, he's definitely giving him a certain correction, but he sees that Avimelech cares about that. And he also wants to keep his relationship. With, what? He didn't do that. He didn't try to explain himself to Paro. He, but he sees Avimelech cares about it. So you see something very significant here. That a person who cares about optics is at least a salvageable person. And I think, that, that, I think there's something to be said for that. In other words, the fact that Avimelech cared about having the appearance of being moral and ethical is something. It's not nothing. A person who doesn't even care, there's nothing you can do with that guy. The person who doesn't care at all, you know, there's no conversation to be had. But the person who cares at the very least about having an image of being moral and ethical, that means that he thinks being moral and ethical is something admirable. He might not live up to it, but he admires it, he respects it. He's faking it until right, he's, exactly, he's faking it until he makes it, or maybe not. Maybe he's not going to make it, but at least he's faking it because he cares. That there's, in other words, a person who wants to be perceived as a moral, ethical person, it means they think being moral and ethical is good. Maybe they feel that they're not up to it. They're not up to that level, but they want to be perceived that way. If you want to be, it's like, I'll give you an example of the opposite. There are some kids, some young kids, and I'm sure you've encountered them, they don't want to be seen as smart because if you're smart, that's a loser, right? If, oh, you, you know, you're smart, you're a nerd. That's, that's embarrassing. Oh, you asked a smart question? Oh, people are going to think I'm some kind of a nerd and a loser if I ask a question or if I know something that's smart. I have to sound like I'm not smart. Right? There are some kids, Dafka, they, they think that it's better specifically not to be seen as smart in the eyes of their peers. Right? We, we know that's, that's a thing. Right? There are some kids that are happy to be seen as smart and they'll say, oh, the people who don't respect smart kids are, you know, they're losers. Whatever. They, they have this, this is a, uh, an ongoing conflict between kids. You know, what, what, is the, what is cooler, to be smart or not to be smart? But a kid who is not supposed to be smart and comes across as smart, oh, he's now he's in trouble because he ruined his reputation. You know? So the, the point is that if you think being smart is good, you might want to fake being smart. 
Right? You'll, you'll try to sound smart. You'll read the dictionary at night to come up with really good fancy words to use. I don't know. You'll, you'll, try, to, you'll try to fake it. A person who thinks being smart is bad, so they'll try to make sure that their image is not smart because you don't want to be seen as one of the smart people you know, that uses proper grammar and knows a lot of stuff you know, because it's going to be embarrassing. So, the, so I'm using that as an example of a contrast to see that what you think is admirable and what you think is quote unquote cool, you know, but admirable or noble or positive is what you're going to aspire to be seen as, even if it's not true about what you are. Like a person who's, who, who believes that being religious is valuable won't want to be seen as irreligious, even if they feel that they're failing in their own religious observance in certain areas, but they wouldn't want people to see them as an irreligious person. Right. On the other hand, somebody who thought it was uncool to be religious might feel embarrassed if they're perceived as, oh, you're becoming religious now. Oh, oh, you know. So they'll they'll downplay it because they don't they don't want to be seen in in a certain light. So what you the light you want to be seen in shows what you think is valuable and what you think is good. And I think that's Avimelech. The fact that Avimelech cared why Abraham lied to him, why my my. My image of being good wasn't enough. What was lacking in, allowed Avram to point out that it wasn't genuine, but also encouraged, Avram wanted to encourage him. He wanted to lessen the offense to Avimelech. Why would he care about lessening the offense to Avimelech? Because he realizes that there's something to work with. Potential. He has potential. There might be a chance to salvage this guy. And we're going to see that they have another interaction later where they make a covenant with each other. They make a breed with each other. Show that there's some value to Avimelech. He's not like Paro. Right? And, and, and moving on in the story. Hey, yeah. His whole plan, though, is to tell people that he's his sister. You don't think it's flawed in that, like, he's protecting himself, maybe not to be killed, but he's kind of giving her away because obviously she's going to be taken that way. I think, yeah, I mean. And if, I, he was, and if he was so well known and recognized to be such a good person, wouldn't it make sense to just have it known that he's a married person and people shouldn't mess with his wife? I think in those days, I mean, if you look at the, like I mentioned it last week also, like in those days, truthfully, if you read the history of the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia and stuff like that, literally, if you wandered into a city, they would just grab you and enslave you. They didn't, they didn't care who you were. Now he became known, but maybe people didn't know his family. They didn't know who he was. And uh, I'm not sure how well... Uh, you know, how well people knew the details of his family life when he would show up. I'm not sure. But it seems like Avimelech knew who he was. It does seem that way. But it doesn't seem like... It could be that I'm wrong. Maybe Avimelech at first didn't know who he was until Hashem told him, oh, he's a Navi and everything. And then he realized that he was somebody special. And then... And that's why he wanted him to stay with him. As, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily. Meaning, meaning the worst case scenario is they would take her and hopefully he would be able to get her released, but he wouldn't end up being dead. Here's my beautiful sister. Who wants to marry her? Come to my shurim. Not to add what, but implying it. That's here's my beautiful sister who wants to marry her. Come to my shurim. 
but they would come into the, the shurim and they would draw them in. But they didn't know that all of a sudden they're going to come and run away, grab her, and, and take her to the paro or to. Well, the only reason why that explanation is not so solid is because he says to her the reason why he says she's his sister is because he doesn't want to be killed. This is, this is so he must have thought that that was a possibility. The, 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 so, uh, calls Bina woman, her. Right. So Abraham uh, Avinu was rhetorically telling Abimelech that I was playing a trick on you. He was saying that she indeed is my sister, like that. I was using Bina, I was using a trickery Bina, who's my sister. I was telling, I was using, I was using the trickery by, by warning in this way that she's really my sister. It's, 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 more, it's more of a drash interpretation, but I, just in terms of the, the simple meaning of the, of the psukim, this is the, and we see later also Yitzchak does the same. That whenever they go into, and it seems like this was a common, uh, a common problem. People who were traveling had to worry that they would be attacked and their wives would be taken. I mean, it seems like, a, and if you look at the culture of that time, it was very common. Strangers were not, didn't have, there was no respect for strangers. It wasn't like, that's why the Torah is such a big novelty that it says, you know, not to do things like that. Still happening. Yeah, it still does happen. Not, hopefully not around here, but not yeah. Here, but Happens it happens in the world, yeah. I mean, I, I I was reading the other day, you know, stories of what they used to do in, in Mesopotamia, was which is where Avram was from. They would, if people wandered into the wrong city, they they just would enslave them. They they would just take the women. To the women yeah, yeah, it's still done. Why did he just not take her with him? because they were he was out his whole life. I mean, his whole life he was for decades they were together. So what was he going to do? Where's he going to leave her? No, because here he's actually settled there. Here they actually settled there. Yeah. So, they, but but seemingly either way, yeah. So there are some people who say that. There are some people who who criticize Abraham for doing that and say that it was wrong. But the problem with that opinion is that. The uh, like the Ramban actually, the Ramban says that it wasn't right that he went to Mitzrayim even when there was a famine, and that it wasn't right that he said that she was his sister. But the problem with that is that not only does he do it again later, but Yitzchak also does it. So it's like it's it, it doesn't seem like they considered it to be wrong. It was like it was basically their way of saying of keeping things anonymous and hoping for the best without inviting any like ayin hara that somebody's going to want to kill you over your wife. That, that seems to be what it was. Now, he's trying to say, don't take it personally like I targeted you, Avi Melech, with this person. It was a policy that we had everywhere that we went that this is what we told people and they, you know, they didn't ask any questions. But the, the, at the end, you see that Avi Melech then gives all these gifts to Abraham and returns Sarah. He gives him uh, the same thing that like Paro did also give gifts to Abraham, but he gives him gifts and, and he gives them back and he says, wherever you want to live, you can live. In fact, it would be good for Avimelech now for, uh, for Avram to stay and live with him because it would show that he was acknowledging the righteousness of Avimelech and that Avimelech did the right thing and it would be validating him and he would continue to live with him. So it could be that maybe he didn't fully appreciate who Avram was in the beginning, uh, but now he does and he wants, the, if, if Avram now leaves in indignation, that would be the worst thing for Avimelech because that's really saying that he was no good. What? 
Yeah, much better optic. So he's giving him gifts and he's saying, stay anywhere that you want. Please stay. And I'm giving you this as a suit enayim, as a covering for the eyes, meaning I want to restore your, your honor. You know, the honor of your wife and all of that. And Abraham, of course, prays and Hashem then heals Avimelech. We then find out that Avimelech and his wife, his whole family, were having like uh, problems, bodily problems, as a result of this situation with Sarah until such time as it was resolved, that they weren't able to have children and they weren't able to, their, their bodily functions were not operating normally. But th- that wasn't mentioned before. But it's mentioned now that everything was healed. The, pro- the, the point is that Avimelech, both in the beginning and when perhaps he didn't fully appreciate who Abraham was, and in the end where he did, is very concerned with optics, and part of the optics is that if Abraham Avinu decides to stay here, it's the ultimate validation of who I am. It's the ultimate validation that I am a good person and that I am decent, because this great icon of, of, of righteousness will stay here. And, and he wanted him to stay there and to say that he, you know, and, and he makes this public, this public display where he gives him all of these gifts and he, he, he uh, and he makes this declaration to him, which clearly is being done in a, in an official capacity because he wants to show that we've made amends and that now Avram Avinu recognizes that I did the right thing by him and everything is good. That's important to Avimelech. Like I said, I don't think it's, I don't think that's necessarily bad on Avimelech. That shows that Avimelech cares. Like a public official who cares to be seen as ethical and moral is better than one that doesn't even care to be seen that way. Neither of them might actually be ethical and moral. But somebody who cares how they're perceived is a higher level than somebody who doesn't care. That's, that's for sure. Somebody would be embarrassed to be discovered not to be ethical and moral is somebody better than somebody who doesn't even care. And so the, um, that's Avimelech. And later Avimelech comes and approaches Avraham Avinu. And this is, a, we also read this actually in, um, on Rosh Hashanah, on page 98 in the Chumash, and it's the sixth Aliyah. He comes and he says, Elohim God is with you in everything that you do, and I want you to make a, an oath to me, a covenant with me, that you won't lie to me or my sons or my grandchildren, like the kindness that I've done with you, you will do with me and with the land that you've lived in. In other words, he wants, this is, an, this is Avimelech saying, I recognize God is with you. I want your endorsement. I want you to make, it's like saying, I want the, I want the, uh, you know, you to, uh, to have diplomatic relations with me and therefore validate. It's like when countries have diplomatic relations with each other, it means in a certain sense, they acknowledge the validity of the sovereignty of that other country. They're saying this is a country that we respect as part of the, even if we have disagreements, you know, we, we respect you as one of the family of nations. He's saying, I want you to make a covenant with me, which means that you respect that my nation, my city is worthy of you, of having a relationship with you. That's really what it means, right? That's why there are certain countries we don't have diplomatic relations with because we, or, you know, because we don't recognize them as being peers of ours. We don't recognize them as having any moral standing, so we don't have any relationship with them. So th- th- he's saying, I want that. Now it's interesting, Avram agrees. And, there, and, and for, the most of it's, for the most part, the commentaries seem to see this as a positive. In other words, Avram Avinu has sanctified God's name to such an extent, and he commands such immense respect in the eyes of Avimelech that he wants to have a, make a covenant with him, and that's very nice. But there, are, there is a midrash that criticizes Abraham and the Rashbam, who was a grandson of Rashi, brings this Midrash and says, this was wrong that he did it. There, there's, there's one opinion among the Chazal that it was wrong. It said, because how are you, that Abraham should never have made a covenant with anybody. 
Because you see that he never wanted, he never tied himself down politically. He never got involved in politics with any nation. Even when he fought the four kings, the five kings that got involved in that whole mess, he said, I don't want anything. I don't want a penny. I don't want anything. He didn't want to be involved in it at all. And here he's making a covenant with somebody. And this covenant actually, um, if you look in the book of Shmuel, was still in force in the times of David Melech, and, and actually prevented them from, uh, you know, they had to... Uh, uh, it, it interfered with their ability to fully conquer the land of Israel because they had to respect this covenant that they had with these plishtim. It's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, Rashi talks about it in the book of Shmuel that this this covenant continued and that they had these signs up or these statues that said the covenant on it, like to tell David Melech he wasn't allowed to he wasn't allowed to conquer certain parts of Israel because of this covenant. And so it it actually was a negative. But the so the Rashbam criticizes brings the midrash that criticizes Abraham. But that aside for a second. Without that, Avraham is here, we see his opinion, his endorsement is valued by Avimelech. And, he's, and, and, and Avimelech is approaching it as God is with you in everything you do. And that's why I want a relationship with you, because I see that God is with you. In other words, he recognized Avraham's greatness as a servant and a representative of God. He was he, God as. Spoke as to him, I told him. Huh? Right, but he's coming of his own accord asking for this in official endorsement. This is a further, their, their first interaction was a little more of a, of a conflict. It was a little more confrontational. This is Avimelech coming and seeking the friendship and endorsement of Avraham based on him saying that I see that God is with you in everything that you do. But then what does Avraham do? Avraham says, uh, okay, I'll agree, but I'm going to criticize you on another thing that you did, that your servants stole my wells. He had dug wells and his servants told him. Now, when you see that, it's very interesting. It says, Asher gazu avde avimelech. What does it mean, Asher gazu avde avimelech? It's basically, you're, you're in charge of them. Right, it means that it was plausible deniability again. In other words, somebody who worked for somebody who worked for somebody did it and said, and, and, and Avimelech said, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. Well, it had nothing to do with me. Right, but if you traced it back, you would see, ultimately, it goes back to the top. Right? So that's why Avram says, you stole my wells. And what does Avimelech say? Lo yadati mi asad I don't know who did it. Right? And you never told me, so it's your fault actually. And I never heard of it before today. Nobody ever brought this my, to my attention. Politicians do this daily basis. Okay? If you want dirty work to be done, you have somebody do it. And I don't want to know who did it. And I don't want to know anything about how it was done. And generally speaking, they will tell somebody to tell somebody to tell somebody to do it. And then the chain is as far away from the original actor as possible. And we know that they do this all the time. Okay. And one of the things that, uh, that happens is when you, when that chain of events comes to light, that communication comes to light, it becomes a scandal. Because they end up finding out that, oh, actually, he did, Nixon did know uh, this and that. Or, you know, so he was aware of what, of what they were doing or whoever it was, whatever, whoever the president was, whoever the leader was, was aware of. What, that's why he ended up having to resign. Because it turned out he was aware of what was going on and that came to light. So if, if, a, if they try to do it as much as possible to wash their hands of whatever scandalous uh, things take place. But at the end of the day, if it gets traced back to them, they're always running a risk. So they try to make it as as, uh, uh, you know, as far from them as possible. Nowadays, we always say, never write it in an email, yeah. right? If you want something dirty work done, don't write it in an email, and you might not even want to do it on the phone because somebody will be able to be recording it or something like that, 
and uh, and you'll get in trouble. So you know, do it in person. I'm not trying to give people advice of how to do unethical things. I'm just saying that you know w- when they're trying to to distance themselves from dirty work, they always try to minimize the op- the possibility that the dirty work will ever be traced back to them. Otherwise, it's totally uh, you know it, it totally defeats the purpose of having. Um, the plausible deniability and the and the distance. So so that's why he's saying he's he criticizes him for his servants doing it because what does that mean? It means that you you might have it might you might have delegated it to somebody who to, who delegated it to somebody and you you didn't want to know about it and you didn't want to hear about it. But at the end of the day, you it, you are responsible for unethical things that are happening, and you're claiming innocence from ignorance because you're saying I didn't know and you didn't tell you're blaming other people. I didn't know. Nobody told me. Right, but meaning that he's he had like theft going on, right? And it was and it was sanctioned theft. It would be like it's like when you find out that let's say a politician there were there were criminals there was you know criminals doing stuff and and really the the the, the government knew about it and was enabling it, but they had enough. This what? Well, in the he it seems like. Uh, it was no, it was knowable because Avraham wouldn't have called him out on it if he didn't know. He says he said your servants did it, meaning one way or another it was your henchmen. You know, even if it might be people that are not officially they don't wear the uniform of you know uh, of the king, but they, they they're connected back. So he exactly what the circumstances are isn't clear, but what's clear is that he's calling him out for another example of this plausible deniability type of politics where he's doing unethical things, but under the guise of being ethical and I didn't have anything to do with it. Just like Rashi says before that, yes, it's true that you asked if she was my wife or my sister, but is that the first thing you ask somebody when you meet them? You don't say, do you need a place to go? Do you need, do you need a place to stay overnight? Do you need this? You ask them, is that your wife or your sister? Meaning your, your, your direction was immediately, um, was wrong, was skewed from the outset even though you might have on paper done everything right, but it was obvious that the intent was, you know, was skewed. So here he's saying it's obvious that yes, you didn't know, and yes, you didn't hear, and you weren't fully aware. You didn't, you maybe didn't order it directly, but it was traced back to you, and you're responsible for it. And um, and and so he's again calling him out for that because, and you see that again, Avimelech is defensive. And so, so, uh, so Avram takes these seven sheep and he has him take the sheep and he says, take these seven sheep as a sign that I dug these wells. What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean? It means take personal responsibility for what happened. Why is he giving him sheep? Right? Why is he giving him sheep? To str- because he's saying you're accepting these sheep as right, it's basically taking responsibility for what happened. In other words, he said by by you taking these seven sheep, these seven sheep are a silent way of saying I take responsibility for what happened, and I'm restoring to you the the, the wells that belong to you. In other words, he's saying to him, you need to take personal responsibility for what happens. Right, he doesn't embarrass, he doesn't, exactly. He doesn't embarrass Avimelech again. But by putting those seven sheep, and, and Avimelech says, what are these seven sheep that you set over here? What are you doing? Again, he asks some questions. You can see that Avimelech wants to learn. He sees that Abraham is doing things that he doesn't fully understand. Avimelech doesn't get the point right away. He says, I want you to take them 
as a sign that I dug these wells. In other words, you're going to take them as a sign that I dug these wells, meaning I'm still holding you responsible for the fact that your servants stole the wells. So I'm insisting that you take the responsibility for that, you know, that distortion, that, uh, you know, that breach of my rights. But by receiving these sheep, you're, you're admitting that this, these wells belong to me and that you made a mistake and that it was your, your fault. The contract won't mean anything. Right. And then they make the, 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 the breach. Then it says that then they made a um, that they made a uh, a covenant there and then they went back to the land of the Plishtim and 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 and, uh, and then it says that Avram planted an eshel he planted an orchard in Beersheba and and he called out in the name of God which means he continued to do his work of spreading the word of God and and and, and making people aware of Hashem and he was in Eretz Plishtim Yamim Rabim for many many years basically he stayed in the land of the Plishtim near Avimelech but this was a success with Avimelech because he's teaching Avimelech that in order to be a moral and ethical person it's not enough to, for, to be able to say on paper I didn't do anything wrong it's not enough to be able to say that that there's no clear and obvious connection between me and the actions that were done. If I'm ethically and morally responsible for them, even if I can paper over my responsibility, it's still moral responsibility. And therefore he makes him take, the taking of the sheep is a kind of a concrete expression of taking responsibility and admission that something was done wrong to Avraham and that he is now restoring to Avraham what was rightfully his. Okay, just the same way that we see that Avimelech, when his honor and dignity was tarnished because of everything that happened with Sarah, he gave gifts to Abraham, and Abraham's re- receiving of the gifts was basically his way of saying, yes, you're right, I acknowledge that, uh, that you, you didn't mean any harm, and I acknowledge, you know, and I restore your dignity, right? So Avimelech is now restoring Abraham's rights to his wells by receiving these sheep from Abraham. But you see that Abraham is in the position of a teacher, really, trying to teach Avimelech that real moral and ethical uh, behavior is when you fully take responsibility for your actions and you fully take responsibility for everything that occurs on your account, even if it's not, even if it's something that you might be able to deny or uh, you know, or uh, that you have an excuse for or that you can defend. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to truly be a good person, you have to be honest with yourself and let go of the defensive, the defensiveness. But I, what, the reason why I think Avimelech is so interesting is because I think most of us are, to a certain extent, an Avimelech. I mean, I think everybody can relate to Avimelech. Because there are some areas in which we're totally honest with ourselves and we're ready to apply the teachings of Torah fully to our lives and we're ready to be totally authentic in what we do. And then there are other areas where we know that we're kind of fudging it and we're not being 100% authentic and we're not being 100% genuine. And in those areas, we come up with all kinds of defenses and excuses and, 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 and half-truths to, to, uh, to protect ourselves, to protect our ego. And, and what Avram is saying to Avimelech is that's not the way to go. It, it's good that you want to be seen as a good person because that means that you value the ideal of a good person. But if you really want to achieve it, then you have to be able to let the defenses down and, and really be, be genuine. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of the relationship between Avram and Avimelech. That Avimelech is willing to, because he values Avram's um, approval, and he values Avram's endorsement of him and friendship with him. Therefore, he's willing to listen to Avram's instruction and apply it to himself. And Avram sees in Avimelech really a potential partner, somebody that can be 
um, an ally. And I think that's why the parasha ends by saying that Avram stayed in Eretz Plishtim Yamim Rabim. It says that after they made this breed, Avram plants an orchard right there and he continues calling out in the name of God. Because I think probably, I'm guessing, but it sounds like Avimelech was an ally to Avraham from then on in his mission of spreading the word of Hashem. And therefore he stayed in Avimelech's territory because of this relationship that they had. And, and his making an eshel and all of that and spreading the word of Hashem was connected to this relationship with Avimelech. That's why it comes at the very end when it talks about the relationship with Avimelech. Then it says right afterwards that he made this uh, orchard and this area where people would come to, uh, uh, to, to, for hospitality and where he would teach because Avimelech was helping him with that. Avimelech was probably supporting him. Maybe he got tax breaks from Avimelech. I don't know how it worked, but you know, one way or another, he was supported by Avimelech and it seems like their friendship led to Avraham feeling that there was hope for the people also in Eretz Plishtim because they had a leader like Avimelech who at the very least cared about um, and uh, about ethics and about morality and about fear of God on some level. So therefore, he had an audience that potentially could be receptive to his message in that area too. So he probably had the help of Avimelech. And probably he also felt that the people of Avimelech were um, good potential students to work with, uh, as opposed to the people of Sodom that were uh, unfortunately a big disappointment to Abraham, which he also tried, seemed to have tried to reach but wasn't able to be successful. So, and I, and, but I, I think it's so interesting to see this because I think it's a, it really, um, in so many ways, uh, resonates with uh, when we look at you know leadership of today and how people relate to being a good person today and and the process of becoming a good person and and how it's it's easier said than done. You know. That they would not lie to each other. He, he, he said that meaning that they would be truthful to each other and that they would respect each other. And I guess that they'd be like allies. It's it's not so clear exactly what that would entail, but he just says, "I don't want you to lie to me." And you will be, do kindness with me. So it sounds like it means that they will respect each other's boundaries, that they will support each other in tr- times of trouble, and they'll be honest with each other, like the way allies would. How did that affect Later on, when David Amelch wants to expand territory into the Eretz Plishtim, so the Midrash says, and Rashi says in the Book of Shemuel, that he couldn't ca- capture certain areas because... Um, the, because the covenant with Avimelech was still in force and they weren't allowed to take those areas yet because Abraham had said that we wouldn't do that. He wouldn't encroach on Avimelech's uh, jurisdiction. So at one point they did, huh? Later, but said that it lasted for a certain number of generations and there were still people alive that were, uh, were included in the original covenant that lived a very long time, so they, they couldn't take it yet. That's, that's what Rashi says. Later it expired, so it was, uh, it was okay.